Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartown, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. on the web at seu.edu slash apex or email us at seuapex at icloud.com. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. Okay, I'm back. Did you guys miss me? It's been about two weeks, I think, or maybe even three since I was last on the air. And you're probably wondering, wait a minute, this is Tuesday. Normally, it's Thursdays when we hear the Apex Hour. Well, that's because we had a special event and a special time today. So this is Lynn Vartan, and you're listening to Thunder 91.1, and this is the Apex Hour. Today in the studio with me is the amazing author, Susan Casey. And I have to tell you, this has been such a joy for me to have her on campus. Um, I was saying this morning during the event, as a native of California, I've been uh, just a longtime lover of the ocean. And when I found Susan's writings, I also not only re-fell in love with the ocean, but also fell in love with her writing style. So let's welcome Susan Casey to the radio station. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Lynn. I'm so happy to have you, and thanks again for offering to spend your time with us, and thanks for providing these amazing books that I've just been devouring and enjoying over and over again. Thank you. Can we start by talking a little bit about just kind of your path of how you came to be the best-selling author that you are today? And and we've talked a little bit about it. If you could just give us a little bit of a, for our listeners, kind of a how you got from there to here story. Well, there in the beginning, uh, I'm from Toronto, I'm from Canada, and uh, went to university at uh, University of Arizona in Tucson, where I majored in swimming. <laughs> I was a swimmer on the swim team and uh, really started taking classes that anything that really caught my attention or seemed intriguing, which was pretty much everything. Yeah. Uh, but I settled into uh, studying French literature, which I think as a career path, it's probably working the cappuccino machine at Starbucks after that. <laughs> but um, I, I w- ended up back in Toronto and began to volunteer at a small city magazine. Oh. Uh, it was called T.O. Magazine. And uh, once I got there, I realized it, it's the magazine work sort of combined all the things I was interested in, which were stories, uh, sort of journalistic endeavors and uh photography and sort of combining them all. So hope, hopefully the the whole is more than the sum of the parts. Right. And from there, I just embarked on a career in magazines. And it took me from there to Vancouver, from Vancouver to San Francisco, and then to Santa Fe. And then I spent 15 years in Manhattan, which is, I, I put it off for a while. Uh, I was a little bit intimidated by the idea of living in New York City. But that's where the magazine world is mostly located. Uh, and the last magazine uh, job that I had was as editor-in-chief of Oh, the Oprah magazine, which is one of the larger women's magazines in the world, actually. Yeah. Uh, and throughout that time, uh, I had been starting to write books. And the, all the books that I wrote are, are, are set in the ocean. Uh, and I'm absolutely fascinated by it, particularly as a swimmer, but also because it's it's the vast majority of our planet and it's it's largely unknown to us and what i look for in a story is something that's so compelling to me that i hopefully my passion will be conveyed on the page to readers and they will feel as excited about it as i am so there's no shortage of mysteries and wonders and magical things to write about in the ocean uh i don't think i'll ever get tired about writing about it. Yeah. Well, you definitely take your readers on that ride. I mean, I feel when, particularly when I was reading The Wave, I was just feeling like I was right there with you, you know, experiencing all of this as you experienced it. Do you have any favorite locations from, I mean, I know that's a tricky one, but I mean, we talked about all the different breaks and you sort of fell in love with Jaws, right? Well, Jaws, so The Wave is about giant waves, not just giant waves that uh, exist 
in, in places where people, a very right. small, verified band of people show up and strap on tiny little surfboards and ride down these mountains of water. But there are also, uh, you know, giant waves out in the ocean, rogue waves that break on ships and cause huge damage, tsunamis that, you know, wreak havoc on places when they break on shore, uh, a whole world of giant waves. And every one of those waves has its own personality. And I, the, the wave that you mentioned, Jaws, is off the north shore of Maui. And it is really... Uh, one of the characters in the book called it the Grand Empress, and it really is. It's a spectacular wave, but the ferocity of it is uh, humbling, to say the least. Yeah. And so I would say that is one of my favorite waves. I now live, <laughs> I fell in love with the place. Uh, I now live about two miles away from it and go to watch it still. And, you know, there are other waves that I would be a little more wary of even watching. There's right. Some of them are very, very frightening. What's the, do you have a scariest one? Well, I think Mavericks in, off the coast of Northern California, so just south dark. of San Francisco, is just, it, it's a wave that's killed a number of people. Yeah. It's, the water's freezing, it's filled with sharks, it's, it's a foreboding place. And, mm-hmm. and half the time it's foggy when they yeah. go out there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's rocks. Wow, that's so cool. And when I was reading your bio, there's all kinds of other things. You were trained as a sharpshooter? Is mm-hmm. that How did that come about? Well, I, I was uh, at the time I was the editor at large for uh, Time Warner's magazine group, which was called Time Inc. Uh, I had a number of magazines, and one of the magazines that they had there was Field and Stream, a oh, right. venerable old magazine about fishing and hunting. Yeah. And I had never uh, I had never even held a rifle. I had never touched a gun, um, but I had gone spearfishing. And I, as a meat eater, had had this feeling that it is something that I should do is go through the process of, of actually gathering my own food. Uh, and so I was speaking at a, it was the book party for, for my first book, The Devil's Teeth, when I was talking to the editor, he, had, he was there. And I said, you know, when I was spearfishing, I had this feeling like it's, you're very close to nature. I mean, you walk into the grocery store and everything's sort of wrapped up. And I think this is valuable to do this. And I said, you know, I'd be kind of interested in hunting. And he said, well, have you had any rifle experience? And I said, none whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So then we decided that it might be an interesting idea, sort of a Pygmalion with bullets to go (laughs) to take a person who's never held a rifle and take then train them to go on the hardest big game hunt in North America and which is uh, bull elk. Um, But from the very beginning, my greatest fear as an environmentalist, as an animal activist, rights activist, all this, I really felt like what was the, the onus was on me to become such a good shot that I wouldn't wound an animal, that it would be a very clean thing. And of course, I had no idea what it would mean to actually fire a gun at Mm -hmm. an elk. Mm -hmm. But, you know, to me, it was a more honest way of approaching my life as a medium. Now I'm not, I don't eat very much meat, but uh, I I trained really hard with the magazine's rifle expert, who was a a man who'd been there for decades, who was quite a character, Mm -hmm. and literally trained to shoot a bullseye at... 300 yards uh, with this very beautiful rifle. Um, And then they sent me off to the West Elk Mountain Range in Colorado. It's just above the Black Canyon of the Gunnison, just a really wild, spectacularly beautiful place. And we we went up to 12,000 feet. I had two guides. We went on horseback. You know, we, we set up our tents in the snow, and then we began the process. And so this was my first time ever going on a hunt. Oh my gosh. And um, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about myself. I went through a wild range of emotions uh, and, and and also be, developed a deep respect for ethical hunting, mm-hmm. um, people who feed their families this way, uh, people who do it right, who have a great deal of conservation uh, interests for, reason, for all kinds of reasons, but you know the, the health of the animal population. It taught me so much. Yeah. But in the end, uh, I was unable to take the shot. I got a shot. I got a very clear shot, and something in me froze. I couldn't huh. shoot. Um, so I then, you know, they weren't too surprised by that because it was a, it was a long journey, yeah. uh, and especially for a novice to go out there and, you know, maybe I should have tried a, a pheasant hunt or something. Right. <laughs> but um, I then went to the, the small town uh, – slaughterhouse where the hunters would come and and have their meat 
I mean, part of the journey for me was supposed to be field dressing the animal myself. Right, right. And since I never took the shot, I never did that. So I went and watched other people do it. And as I said, I came away with a, with a deep appreciation for the, the process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I do think that it is really important that if we are going to ask, you know, an animal to give its life so that we can eat, that we know about this process and that it isn't something 10 steps removed from us. And, right. you know, yeah. Wow, that's such an interesting story. I That's fascinating. And to complete shift of gears, there's something about performing as a mermaid. <laughs> uh, Esquire, I wrote for Esquire magazine for some time. I had a column in there and uh, they had an issue that they did every year called What It Feels Like. And and all the contributors for Esquire would, would send in their suggestions of what they were going to do. People would say what, is, what it feels like to, you know, all kinds of things. I mean, do I can't, they still have that? That's a great. I don't know. I don't I think so. But um, they're short. It was a short piece. But at the time, I, I sort of proposed it tongue in cheek. But there was. I lived in New York, and there was a bar in New York that had this giant tank, <laughs> and in the front of it, there would be all these, you know, this bar, this full bar, and then there were mermaids in the tank. So I went in there one night and did a shift as a mermaid, and immediately realized that it was it's very hard work to be a mermaid. <laughs> you can't wear goggles because that's not very mermaid-like. Good so point. you can't see a thing. They, they had fish in there, and um, it was very salty. So I would dive down. I had this, you know, cost, mermaid costume on, and, and then I would immediately get just sort of shot up to the surface because it was so salt, salty. And then across the top, they had these two-by-fours that you could grab onto to pull yourself out, and I kept hitting my head. Oh. So I came out about two hours later with, you know, red eyes and, you know, a sore head and <laughs> a deep appreciation of how mermaids must feel after a hard day of work. <laughs> that's a great story. I'm so glad. Yeah. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. Oh, well, that's wonderful. I think that bar was eventually shut down by the Board of Health. <laughs> could be, could be. Yeah. And now you split your time between Hawaii and New York. So you kind of get the best of both worlds, it sounds like. Yeah, right. I'm in Hawaii when the snow starts to fall. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Well, we'll talk about the books a little bit more in our next a little break. But there are two articles I'd like to ask you about. And the first one, we haven't had a chance to talk about much today. And um, this was also for Esquire, I believe, this article 75 that mm-hmm. was about investigating aging and examining that through the life of one one man. Can you tell us a little bit about that article and that process? So it was for Esquire's 75th anniversary issue. Uh, I had, through the course of reporting my book, The Wave, met a man who was 75 years old who was training with these professional athletes in Malibu in California. And he was leaving people like Reggie Miller, you know, the basketball star, in the dust. He was the most extraordinary physical anomaly. I mean, I thought it was an anomaly, but he trained so hard. His name is Don Wildman, and uh, he he's legendary around uh, – Southern California. And it it turns out the more I got to know him, uh, I I realized he has this incredible life story. He was in the Korean War. He started, he really started the idea of the modern gym in America. He started Bally's Fitness. His whole MO in life is you train for your life. And uh, so he, at 75 years old, broke every stereotype that you might think a 75-year-old, the typical 75-year-old, you know, Actually, 70 and 75 is becoming increasingly younger yeah. these days, but not always. Right. So there's this this sort of relativity to aging. And I wanted to take a look at what the sort of peak 75 could be. Yeah. And so I hung out with Don. I attempted to do his workouts. He, he, he's extreme. Yeah. And, uh, and, and just, just an incredible character, which is another thing I, I look for in every story, um, he, I mean, I can't even begin to tell you. Don has done the Ironman nine times. Oh my god! He's done these extreme sailing races. He's he has competed in the Senior Olympics a number of times. His idea of fun is going uh, helicopter snowboarding in Alaska <laughs> on these runs that have never been skied by anybody before. Whoa. And he's just living large. And now he's about eighty three, and he's 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 broken every bone in his body and recovered. He's just still going strong. I just saw yesterday, I think it was on Instagram, that he's over in Japan skiing in Hokkaido. And 
You know, oh my gosh. <laughs> he's, he's, he's extraordinary. But as, as you look at the aging process through him, are there any sort of um, takeaways for everyone in that other than just live large or train for your life? I mean, what else could we all learn from that, do you think? Well, Don has a real joie de vivre, and he it hasn't diminished over the years. If anything, he's more aware that, you know, He's not going to live forever, and he might as well get in as many big adventures as he can. And uh, he he's uh, he loves to eat, so he eats very well. He doesn't go overboard taking huge handfuls of vitamins or anything like that. But he he lives a he lives the life of a happy person. Oh, and um, and his spirit is, I think, I really do believe that that's the relative part of aging is the spirit. Uh-huh. You know, your your body is obviously going to go through changes. Although Don lifts weights for a couple hours a day. He trains so hard that I almost wonder if at a certain point he trains too hard. Oh. He pushes himself to the point of where most people would not go. I see. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I love what you said about, you know, living as a happy person and and really that that lifting of the spirit, that that sort of liveliness of the spirit in that way. I think there's definitely a lesson for everyone there. So before we get into the next article, which I'm, I'm very uh, excited to talk about because I think it's such an important topic for right now. We'll take a little musical break. Um, Those of you who listen to the apex hour know that I love turning you guys on to new music. And we're going to start with something that was a recommendation from this year's South by Southwest festival. So South by Southwest 2018. And this is a song that's titled Throw Me in the Water, keeping with our water theme. And it's by Wild. And this is the Apex Hour. You're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. away only gets me closer falling fast can we move it slower you touch so sweet I hate it when you're like this cut the ties throw
All right. Well, this is Lynn Vartan, and you're back listening to the Apex Hour on KSU Thunder 91.1. That song was called Throw Me in the Water from the group Wild. And again, it was one that was kind of recently shown off at the South by Southwest Festival this year in 2018. I'm in the studio with Susan Casey, and we've been talking about uh, her path to her success in writing and some of her um, research projects. And I'd like to continue the discussion with an article that you won a national magazine award it was a nomination national magazine award nomination for and it was the article's titled our oceans are turning to plastic are you um so and that was some years ago i think you mentioned it was 2007 can you talk a little bit about that article and then also how you feel about that today and how this subject is still affecting us it's a it's a huge subject uh I was approached by a magazine to write about the North Pacific garbage patch, which is a an, an enormous area of the Pacific Ocean that is, uh, because of the currents, collecting plastic. And at the time I wrote it, I think, um, if I can recall correctly, it was like the size of Texas. But recently they've discovered it's much, much bigger than that, like more like three times the size of that. So it's huge. And uh, this isn't just floating large floating pieces of debris. This is microscopic pieces of plastic that are throughout the entire water column. And uh, these there's a gyre in each of the oceans. It's a sort of a depression in the currents that it's almost like to, to make an analogy, it's like a, it's like a toilet bowl. It's right. swirling and the, these plastic fragments are, and big, bigger pieces too are caught in this uh, swirling current. It's, it's more like a depression. So it, these things gather there and so I started investigating f- for this article. I was a little bit of writing about the ocean. I had been aware that plastic in the ocean is a big problem. And most plastic does end up there. Mm-hmm. Even if it ends up in a, it's in a garbage or it blows into a storm drain, it makes its way to the ocean. Uh, and it's, it's rare these days if you walk along a beach not to find a tremendous amount of plastic. Exactly. So I was concerned right off the bat because this plastic is really harming animals in the ocean. But the editor sort of pushed me and said, well, what is it doing to us? And I was a little bit put off because I was like, well, isn't this bad enough that it's killing all these animals? And you see turtles with six-pack rings around their shells and they've grown. It's just horrible. And dolphins choking on plastic bags. And how how can it get much worse? But as it happened, uh, a bunch of new science had come out right around the time I wrote the article showing that, in fact, these, these plastic pieces are getting into the food chain and they are uh, filled with chemicals because plastic is made from petroleum and petroleum's an oil-based substance. And all these very noxious chemicals adhere to oils. That's, that's really what they bond to. So you've got some of the worst chemicals we've ever made, like things like dioxins, PCBs, flame retardants, pesticides, Most of which have already proven to be carcinogenic, many of which are also endocrine disruptors. In fact, they tend to affect estrogen production uh, to make more estrogen. So you start to think about that. And if you were to have your blood taken today and they analyzed your body burden, you know, how many chemicals are in your body that shouldn't be there, every one of us is carrying a huge body burden. And these chemicals are doing things to us. And so then when you look at the instances of, you know, the upticks in things like breast cancer, other illnesses, you know, these chemicals have an effect on our genetics. So as we continue to use plastic, we should be, I think, much, much, much smarter in what we're making out of plastic. We should be making things that are supposed to last for 500 years Mm -hmm. because, Plastic doesn't biodegrade. It's been around for less than 300 years. It's still every last scrap of plastic that we have ever made exists on this planet right now as plastic. So the idea that we are using this incredibly durable substance to create our most disposable objects is just insanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and this is becoming increasingly clear in the science. Um, people, I think, are becoming more aware of it. But the thing that is not happening enough yet is that manufacturers need to to start using plastic in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. We should be using it for things like roofing tiles and heart stents and things that need to last for a long time. Right. 
I love that perspective on it because I think that we tend to hear, especially those of us who want to be environmentally conscious and this kind of, we, we tend to hear, oh, well, don't use plastic bags, don't use these. And yes, of course, that's true. But I like the take that you're going at. I mean, there are some really good uses for plastic and it should be like you're saying things that are meant to last for hundreds of years, you know, but it's the disposable plastic that we see in our everyday lives that we should do something about. And did I hear you mention something that we can maybe research about a, a Japanese city that's gone trash free or something like that? Do you have any more to tell us about that? Unfortunately, I can't recall the name, but I was watching, uh, I was in a place that was playing a news clip about this town in Japan that is going entirely waste-free. And there's also a, one in the Netherlands. Uh, and I think that this is an interesting experiment um, in changing habits. Mm -hmm. Some of these things are just habits. Right. And, um, I, and I think that consumers, there's a, once we realize the damage that this is doing to us, but to both planetary and human health, that's and you feel sort of overwhelmed by that. Like, what can one person do? But you you can always vote with your wallet, and you can uh, make manufacturers aware that you are not going to buy items that use plastic wastefully or needlessly. I mean, recently I saw apples encased in polycarbonate plastic, a very heavy kind of plastic. Right. Plastic is also not easily recyclable, despite what you may have heard from the plastics industry. Mm -hmm. We can never use plastic again for food-based packaging because you can't heat it. If you heat, if you burn plastic, it off-gasses really toxic chemicals. Someday there may be a way to do it and sequester those chemicals, but it's not, you don't burn them. And so you can't heat it up high enough to sterilize a food container to use it again as a food container. What this very small amount of plastic that gets recycled ends up in is, is things like fleece jackets or as I said, roofing tiles, things that don't go anywhere near your mouth. Right. So every, th every food container that is produced with plastic is, a, is using virgin plastic. Um, and if you just, you know, once I, this, this article affected me more than any article I've ever written. I can't walk into a grocery store now and not just reel at the amount of plastic there is. Right. And I've been to some parts of the world in, in developing countries where they're just, I mean, you, you can't even get into the water. It's knee deep in plastic. There's an island in the Pacific that just so ha be, happens to be near the South Pacific gyre that has 37 trillion pieces of plastic on it. And uh, the southern tip of Hawaii, the Hawaiian island, the big island, Hawaii, um, also snags debris from the, from the currents. And if you go online and look up pictures of some of those places, you just won't even believe it. Wow. It's, it's haunting. Okay. It's terrifying. That's and there's scary. no there's no easy way to get it out of the ocean. I mean, people are are coming up with ideas, uh, but it's throughout the entire water column, mm -hmm. and they find animals with their entire stomachs filled with fish, birds, filled with plastic. And it can't be just. I mean, it can't be destroyed. Like not you really. Said, we we still have the plastic from the beginning of when plastic was invented. In in a way, I mean, when what are we gonna do? We've got hundreds of years of it, so. And we still don't know when it's going to biodegrade. It might be another couple hundreds of years. Yeah, that's a scary It might be topic. more. Yeah. Well, I think that we all should be more aware of it. And, and I know that there are little, like you said, habit-changing things that we can do. Do you have any other suggestions for people as individuals? Don't use straws. Refuse to use straws. Bring your own cups to... Uh, you know, to get coffee, um, you know, those are small things. But as I said, vote with your wallet. Mm -hmm. Don't buy the apples in polycarbonate plastic. You know, I was in New York recently, and I saw plastic forks and knives wrapped in plastic. Yeah. It's not very hard to get a set of bamboo forks and knives and chopsticks and put them in your bag, you know, and right. Yeah, these are, uh, these are easy habits to change. And, and the cost is just way too high. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. That's, I, it's a topic that I feel pretty strongly about and I'm excited to, to get, get more people exposed to.
So switching gears, I'd love to talk a little bit about your books. Um, and we talked a little bit about the wave in the first chunk. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about Voices in the Ocean, um, which was a New York Times bestseller and was named one of Amazon's best books of 2016. Um, it, it seems like it's a very personal part of your story, this, this book and how you came to start studying dolphins. Yes, Voices in the Ocean is... Uh, is about the, the mysterious and uh, sort of crazy relationship between uh, the mysterious world of dolphins and the very crazy relationship that we have with them. It's it, when when uh, the, my first book, The Devil's Teeth, really uh, took me into the world of great white sharks. And for this book, it's like a bookend. We yeah. we have these mythic uh, ideas about both animals, about dolphins and about sharks, and they're sort of polar up. Opposites, yeah. you know, we think sharks are are just bad, and dolphins are all good. And the, in both cases, the truth is much more nuanced and interesting than that. Right. And in the case of dolphins, we have what I think is a very unique relationship with them. In some ways, we seem to understand that they are a lot like us. Mm -hmm. uh, they have societies, they have culture, they have language. They're incredibly intelligent animals, but they happen to live underwater. Mm -hmm. They're air-breathing mammals. They have families. They have names. Uh, there's there's this wonderful parallel and and all of our interactions with them you know i like to say emotions run hot around dolphins people are love them like crazy we capture them we put them in marine parks because you know we think we want to see them so much when you start to learn about the natural history and and who they really are and i and i use the the word who very specifically because these are individuals. They're mm -hmm. self-aware. They name each other, right? They, no, or, yeah, they are given names by their, um, usually by uh, their mother or a matri. The, the, a lot of the dolphin um, species are matriarchal. Oh, um, wow. The, you know, they live in a realm where there's there's no writing. So the elder females pass down all this knowledge. And this is an oral culture. Right. And, and again, I'm using the word culture the way that, in a very scientific way, yeah. they they pass along so, information through social learning. They yeah. learn just like we do. That's amazing. And I read somewhere that you have experienced that echolocation in in your interaction with them. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I write in, uh, the, in the wild when they're in the ocean where they live. <laughs> uh, they have a sense. Their their biggest sense is hearing. I mean, ours is vision. But hearing is much better for the, them because most of the time they're half the time it's night and below 60 feet, there's very little light in the ocean. So it's their primary sense of navigating the world is through sound. And so they, over the course of their 95 million year evolution, have developed this echolocation sense that enables them to use sonar to create pictures of their surroundings. And their sonar is so intricate that it's just mind blowing. We can't even come close in our most advanced uh, nuclear submarines to wow. even, I mean, it's, it's like not even kindergarten what we can do compared to what they can do. Uh, so when you're in the ocean with a dolphin, you, you can feel them sometimes emitting their sonar clicks and it, the, the clicks are emitted through uh, these sort of sacks in their head and through their, um, it, through their, it would it'd be like the equivalent of their nose, the blowhole. Uh, the sound, though, comes through their foreheads. All right. And, uh, and then the, the clicks bounce back to them, and it comes through their jaws. The jaws are lined with a, a sort of a fatty substance, and they have a lens in their forehead where they can focus the sonar so oh, they can wow. get a real idea. And it's ultrasound. It's very high frequency, so they can see air pockets in your body. They, if, you're a, if you're a woman and you're uh, pregnant and you have a, a baby that – they can see that they wow. can tell. Yeah. It's just the same ultrasounds that you would get in a doctor's office. And you can, when you, you can feel that as a human or you, cause you can't really hear it. You can hear it oh. underwater. You, they make all kinds of noises. They make whistles and mm -hmm. clicks. The clicks are the sonar mm -hmm. and it's a buzz. It's kind of a buzzing sensation. Wow. Yeah. They sonar you. That's amazing. Yep. And then uh, you met some amazing people and you spend some time in a particular community that has in Hawaii that has a special connection to dolphins and a, like a spiritual uh, pathway with them. Can you talk a little bit about that part of the story? Yeah, I set out to find people who are interacting with dolphins in all kinds of extreme ways. And one of the groups 
that I spent time with is uh, New Age devotees on the Big Island. Uh, they call themselves Dolphinville. And uh, they sort of have coalesced around this woman named Joan Ocean, who uh, is has, has basically devoted her life to swimming every day in the ocean with wild dolphins. And uh, on the Big Island, there are populations of this species called spinner dolphins that uh, at night they go out and hunt in the deep water. Uh, and then in the day, they come into the bays closer to shore, and it's relatively easy to find them. So, um, you know, they're resting, and um, they sort of swim around, and they're pretty mellow. And so Joan and, her, and the people of Dolphinville go out and swim with the dolphins and have come to know the population of dolphins on the big island. And, uh, yeah, and they, I mean, they have some intriguing ideas about dolphins. Um, as a journalist, I'm always looking for for characters who – uh, you know, have great stories. And I mean, these are people that believe that dolphins come from another planets that, you know, they're imparting wisdom. And, and, and I think there's all, there's something to everything they're saying, but you know, that some of their views are pretty extreme about where the dolphins came from and what they're up to. Yeah. Do they feel like they can really understand what they're saying? Is that part of it? Yeah. But it's not in the way that we would think of as that. It's more like a feeling. Uh, it, the way it was described to me is, you know, Animal communication is a whole separate topic, and it's a big one. But, right. you know, they send images, pictures, intuitions. Um, you, you get a hit of some sort of real revelation. And I've had those experiences when I've been swimming with dolphins, too. Yeah. yeah. Do you continue to have experiences with dolphins? I know you had that very powerful initial experience. Have you, have you had more over the years? Oh, yeah. I mean, and I've swam with now with a lot of different species of dolphins. Wow. There are, you know, so there's orcas or dolphins and, mm -hmm. and pilot whales and false killer whales. There are 37 species of oceanic dolphins, and I've I've met up with a lot of them. Wow. Yeah, they're all different. Oh, they're, really? They're just different cultures, different tribes. And you can probably feel that. Yep. Oh, and some of them, amazing. like pilot whales, are among the more the ones that I would hesitate to get in the water with. Um, I've ah. swam with them several times, but they're 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 serious business pilot whales, and they've a couple times um, grabbed people by the ankle and pulled them down, and really? they're a little cantankerous, ah. <laughs> and they're big. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I love hearing about that. Um, one other part of the dolphin story is the captivity uh, portion of it. And um, can you share some of your feelings about that and uh, impressions or thoughts about that aspect of the puzzle? Yeah, it's a really dark industry. Uh, you know, um, once you learn about start to learn about the natural history of dolphins and how extraordinary their brains are and how extraordinary their abilities uh, are and how evolved they are. I mean, they started off on land, and then they went into the ocean. They've gone through this wild evolutionary ride of changing shape many, many times. Unlike us, we've more or less stayed the same. We're, our species is at, at the most about 2 million years old. So they're, you know, they're 95 million years old. And um, they, uh, you know, once once you see them in action, you can never think, hey, this is, let's put this in a swimming pool. You know, it's, right. they can't use their sonar. They're, a dolphin's world is other dolphins. Their social bonds are incredibly tight. A dolphins can recognize uh, their friends, their family, even after being separated for decades. Wow. And they are, you, you try to imagine yourself being locked even in a, a beautiful hotel room. It, it's not fun. And right. so they express a lot of stress behaviors. They die um, at a much younger age in captivity than they do in the wild. Um, and, you know, there are, for every marine park that has veterinarians and does its best, which is, again, I stress, not good enough, mm -hmm. uh, uh, there are these horrible marine parks in places in the world where people are, you know, for $100, you swim with a dolphin. Most of the times, um, you can feel the dolphin's anguish. Uh, kids often come up to me and tell me that, that their parents took them and they were very upset by it. And Oh, Wow. Uh, and you know, there's a there's a very lucrative and and bloody trade in live dolphins. And I went to some of the more difficult places in the world to, to to learn more about that and to see it. If anybody wants to get more educated on that part of the topic or feels particularly moved to participate and advocate, is is there anywhere where they could go or should go to get involved? 
Yeah, uh, the the man who the main character in the book, um, Rick O'Berry, in, in the that part of the book, he's he's was Flipper's trainer. He's a famous act dolphin activist, and his project is the Dolphin Project. Uh, I believe it's the dolphinproject.org. And he um, he he got to be so close with the dolphins he was working with. He knew them as individuals. And it, as with many scientists who've spent a lot of time with them, there's a moment of revelation where it's like, these are, these are beings. Mm -hmm. These are not animals that, that we should be doing this to any more than we would want to have it done to us. And so I really, I went to Taiji, Japan with him, uh, where there's a documentary, it won the Oscar in 2010 called The Cove. Okay. And it's a, it's a large dolphin hunt in Japan that really continues to exist because um, they can sell the dolphins, uh, you know, a young female dolphin uh, that they can train for Marine Park sells for $150,000. So they, they continue to do this. The Cove is about that. Um, and he's in the Cove. So I went back two years later with him and a group of activists uh, to the Cove. The activists were all there after seeing the movie. And the hunt continues. And it's just heinous. Okay. So if you want to get more involved or you want to find out more about this piece in, in the dolphin story and in, and in, in the puzzle, um, the movie, the cove and also the dolphinproject.org would be a place to, to start your research. Um, on that note, I'd like to take a moment to listen to one more song. And this song is called Come My Way. And the group is the Sudan Archives. And this is another recommendation from the South by Southwest Festival uh, 2018. This is Lynn Vartan. You're listening to KSUU, the Apex Hour on Thunder 91.1. <laughs> I can't be you now I can't be you but I can be true love. I want to be friends I want to be friends till time ends, yes Okay, well, welcome back to the Apex Hour. This is Lynn Vartan. You're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. That song was called Come Me Way. It's um, spelled M-E-H, Come Me Way, but she really kind of says it, Come My Way. And it's by a group called the Sudan Archives. And again, that was a recommendation from uh, a playlist from the South by Southwest Festival uh, 2018. We're back in the studio for our last segment uh, with Susan 
Jason Casey, uh, author of uh, The Devil's Teeth and The Wave, um, which is subtitled In Pursuit of Rogues, Freaks, and Giants of the Ocean. And then also Voices in the Ocean, A Journey into the Wild and Haunting World of Dolphins. It's been such a joy to have you here today. Thank Thank you. It's been great. Our last little bit is always kind of a fun um, little thing that we do. And it's kind of like, what's turning you on? So is there a, a book or a movie or a podcast or what's turning you on right now? So I, I'm a huge consumer of media. I, I read constantly. I've started to really get into uh, listening to podcasts Um and I think there's a, a lot of great TV out there, too. So it's an interesting time to, to choose one, you know. Um, I guess I'll stick to books because that's really, that's my great love. And uh, right now I'm reading a lot about the deep ocean because that is going to be the subject of my next book. Uh, there's a lot going on in the deep ocean, exploration, yeah. a, a sort of a race to mine the seafloor, which has uh, very extreme environmental repercussions. Um and uh, we, we're now beginning to look into the deep ocean for the first time. It's really the last frontier on Earth. So there's a lot of that. And that includes like a lot of scientific papers and things that may not be the, the world's most f- fabulous reading for anybody but me. <laughs> but um, for fun, I love to read mysteries. Oh, I um, recently an author named Sue Grafton passed away and yeah. an author that I really like. I, she's a mass market writer and I hadn't really followed her work. She has 26 books. <laughs> I read them all. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I am I, I, constantly reading. That's great. Yeah. So you like to kind of relax with a good mystery. Yeah, I love, I just love mysteries. That's cool. Yeah. Well, what about podcasts? Because I'm super into podcasts too. I was curious. What do you have a favorite right now? I, I'm listening to Pod Save America and I absolutely love it. Oh, what's that one like? Pod Save America is, uh, is a political um, news show uh, mm-hmm. that is... Uh, it's very popular. I think it might be number one in the Apple podcasts right now. And it's just basically about everything that's swirling around us right now, which is, you know, another set of its own extremes. Oh, yeah. It's a very, it's a, it's a very important time for everybody to be aware of what's going on. Oh, I'm going to check that one out because I haven't, I have so many. Oh my gosh. It can, doesn't it just get, it gets a little over. I just want to go outside and walk so I can listen to my podcast. Yep. (laughs) Um, Another question I love to ask is, is there, uh, and I'm thinking more towards, you know, we, we have a large undergraduate community of students here. Is there anything that you wish you had known early on in your career? And I'm thinking like kind of what advice would you give to young people just kind of getting started in their careers now? Well, I think there's, there's, there's a few things. Um, one of the things that I think really benefited me was starting in a kind of a small pond. I mean, not that Toronto was a super small pond, but it, Canada is a much smaller pond than, say, if I had in my magazine career just launched myself right into Manhattan off the bat. I think I would have been getting coffee for years before I ever <laughs> got any to write anything or edit anything. And by starting in a smaller place, I was able to you know, everybody, it's all hands on deck. So you get a much wider range of experience. Uh, and I'm a big fan of that. You, you, you learn your craft and it takes a long time. And it, you know, it is a very hard process. It is roll up your sleeves time. Yeah. And don't, nobody should kid themselves that mastery or even expertise or professional success comes uh, like down from uh, the cloud in a, on a silver platter. It, right. This is like, uh, I, I, many round the clock nights and things like that. And, you know, if the most important thing, the single most important thing is everybody has something that they're passionate about. Everybody has uh, something that makes them lose track of time when they're working on it and just engrosses them. It doesn't feel like work. And for me, it was the, the pursuit of a story and, and the different media through which I could tell it. But I think to find that passionate thing and not go from a sort of a place of fear of, oh, how will I make a living? How will I do this? How will I do that? It is true that you may not make a living right off the bat if you want to be a musician or a poet or a writer or any of these other things outside of, say, investment banking or, you know, law or something. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't also mean that you have to go to accounting school if you don't just love accounting because you're scared you won't be able to make a living. Right. Just forget the fear. Go with with the passion. And, uh, you know, many 
times I was working at my job during the day and writing at night. That's fine. That's part of the journey. And um, now I'm fortunate in that I have a, a large group of readers and I can write full time, but it didn't happen till I was 50. So, you know, hang in there and just do what you love. I love everything that you just said. I mean, from the when you were saying it's all hands on deck and the advantage of the small pond, that's particularly for our university here, Southern Utah University. That's one thing that we really believe in is that, you know, we are a smaller institution, but the experiences that you can get and the opportunities that you can get and you, you can really start honing your craft. And that's fantastic. And then follow that through to the, the passion part and, and choose passion over fear. So thank you so much for those comments. Yes. And I always ask, uh, what was, can you think of the best advice that you've ever been given? Oh, I've had, I mean, I worked for Oprah for four years and she's, she's always, every time she opens her mouth, she's saying something. That's that, what you know, I was going <laughs> to ask. Is she as sage as we all, you know? <laughs> yeah, she really is. And the, 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 the thing I love about her is there's not two of her. There's the, the person that you see on TV is really the way she is. Oh. And, you know, she, um, I, 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 to, to pick just one thing, I, I mean, I think be your best self means coming from the heart. I mean, we're such rational creatures. We're always calculating and thinking and analyzing. But, you know, I, I think in the future, we have to think more with our hearts. And um, if I was to give any advice, it would be, be who you are, but be your best self. Yeah. And, um, you know, somebody, uh, I saw a t-shirt somebody was wearing, it said, um, whenever possible, be kind. And it is always possible. Oh, yeah. I love that. Well, I think that's an absolutely beautiful note to end on, you know, be kind, be your best self. So just thank you so much. Susan Casey is in the studio and thank you for spending the time. And again, if you're interested in the books or don't already know about the books, The Devil's Teeth, uh, The Wave and Voices in the Ocean, which are available on all in, in all bookstores and then also in Amazon and I, and Apple and everywhere you can find your books. I definitely encourage you to check them out. I love them. So thank you again so much, Susan, for spending time with me today. Thanks, Lynn. It's a pleasure. All right. And so we will be back uh, later on this week talking with our art students. So stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, let's get you back to the music here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu apex or email us at suuapex at icloud.com. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.